0: You are listening to Mental Crack, a podcast where a true crime-obsessed and beer-nerdy wife and her whiskey and bourbon-loving husband talk about killers, cults, and other crimes while breaking down the psychology behind the madness.
1: A quick disclaimer on this podcast. So it contains information that may not be suitable for all listeners and is not recommended for everyone. Listener discretion is obviously advised. And... additional disclaimer we have no idea what we're doing this is the first podcast we've done we are a little bit technology limited as far as what we have available so bear with us for this one and enjoy the planes in the background a little bit because we're getting ready to get started
0: so welcome to the very first episode of mental crack my name is jen and i've practiced as a psychologist for about 17 years now and i'm ridiculously intrigued by the darker side of humans And with me, my disclaimer giver, I have my husband, Andy. He's a fantastic supporter who has stuck with me for the past 23 years. Thank you so much for being here today. No problem. As a matter of fact, we're married 19 years come Tuesday. So um, may he always be blessed. So for me personally, if I had to pinpoint it, I would say that my obsession um, with this type of subject matter began with reading Helter Skelter the book by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. And I read this when I was in middle school and I couldn't put that thing down. I mean, the whole thing about what made a person like Charles Manson tick, how did he gain the loyalty of his followers? What were the personality traits of Charlie and his followers that enable him to be successful in getting them to pull off some pretty brutal and gory stuff? And how does that work? So as scary as it may seem, I wanted to get in their heads and see what was making the wheels turn. What about you?
1: So yeah, I am not as obsessed with this kind of thing, but I am naturally curious and I think my involvement with serial killers and those kind of topics comes from probably junior high, high school, whenever I read Helter Skelter because I was getting into the Beatles and Everything else that goes along with that catcher in the rye.
0: Helter Skelter was like a rite of passage for a lot (laughs) of us during that time.
1: For the most part, yes. Um, So I do have some experience there. And then later on, I did read about some other serial killers, but nothing heavy. And I wasn't really focused on the psychological side. For myself, I'm a, I guess, a technology walk. I've been in IT for several years. And um, I'm a geek, but a geek in a different vein. I'm a standards geek. So I worry about things that allow people to connect and making sure that they're standardized so everybody has a level playing field. And with that,
0: we present to you, don't drink the Kool-Aid, perhaps a cold one instead. Now, mind you, I, I've already acknowledged on some of my posts on Instagram that, you know, we're kind of hitting up the, the low-hanging fruit of the cult world, but it's a good jumping off point to help us kind of get our, our rhythm about how we're going to do stuff and our structure about how we're going to do stuff. So um, we're talking about Jonestown today, and as we are discussing Guyana, I did some research regarding the beers that are popular within the nation. First off, the most popular beers have historically been from Barbados, and that includes today's selection, which is Banks Beer. Banks Beer is brewed at the Banks Barbados Brewery, which produces a Banks Lager as well as an Amber, and it also brews Tiger Malt, which is non-alcoholic malted beverage, hashtag winning. And uh, I'll be completely honest here, in this neck of the woods, it wasn't easy to get a hold of Banks Beer. But thankfully, the beer procurement facility from across town, where only those who are adventurous may go, had a sixer of it. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. We'll see how the top pops. I'm always, this does not have a twist off. I'm terrible at twists off anyway, because I always get injured. So here we go. That's kind of a quiet pop. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um. Because I am a fan of the unique, I do want to mention pal's Brewing Company, which is also in Guyana. Um, three friends developed the first Guyanese craft beer, and it was launched countrywide there a few years ago. It's the brainchild of the friends Pierre, Alan, and Stuart, and it's called a cold one. And it's a combination of ale and beer crafted from pure, high quality grains, not from concentrate. And the team crushes the grains themselves in order to get the freshest room as possible. Uh, Pierre is quoted as saying, in general, we follow the German purity law of beer making, which basically says that if a beer, um, that a beer should not contain anything other than malt and hops. Otherwise, it could not be called beer. So Pierre, Allen and Stewart are hopeful of making it big in the local market, but are more after than the material success. They want that, you know, the idea of a cold one um, and that phrase just it's a tribute to abiding friendships among Guyanese on any given occasion. And um, the new beer, which is processed at a microbrewery in the city, is available only in Guyana right now. Um, beer nerd that I am. I did contact them and they indicated they doubted that there would be an overseas release of a cold one anytime soon. Um, it did actually launch during the pandemic, which of course we're still in the in the uh, experience of. But when it does make it this way, I'm excited to give it a try. So talk to me, Andy, about your selection. For go today. ahead and pour yours. Go ahead. Oh, that sounds good. It's got my, my favorite pint glass here from my favorite pub, which is um, Trolley. And Trolley is located mm-hmm. in Briar Creek here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, We've mentioned the planes. it's right near the airport, just like us.
1: Yep, right. I'm impressed. You managed to stop that right before it went over the top. Sure did. Excellent. So what I will be drinking today is um, from the Bal- Balvani, sorry, uh, and it is a 14-year-old Caribbean cask uh, scotch. So the scotch has been aged for 14 years in a traditional oak cask and then finished in cask previously used for Caribbean rum. Uh, for the discerning, which is not me, it is said to have tasting notes of vanilla and sweet oak, Over and over time it will develop a fruity character. Uh, also somewhat like me. But that being said, um, for me, it's a wonderful drink. It's one of my favorites. Everything from the Balvenie is, uh, I found, to be really good from their limited releases up through this one, which is um, a regular uh, but they're always represented in my whiskey selection, which is becoming more and more extensive because they're whiskey is my Pokemons. So I, I collect them, uh, with that, let me go ahead and open my bottle. Nice. There we go. <laughs> okay. Cheers.
0: All right. Cheers to the first episode. Sláinte. That's good. This is actually a very chill lager. It's nice. pretty good. Yeah.
1: Mine tastes exactly like it tasted last time.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. nothing changed. I'm, I'm a noob when it comes to this stuff. Maybe so.
1: maybe a bit fruitier okay. with age.
0: Much like you, yes. Yes. All right, so let's look at the name Jonestown and just kind of think about it from three different perspectives and um, our viewpoints. So what I do want to say is that we do have a Patreon page. Um, it's patreon.com slash Crack. That's C-R-A-I-C. Um, And I'll be uh, posting all the sources that I um, am making reference to. Um, And if you're interested in any additional exploration of Jonestown, that's a really good place to start. But as I was telling Andy, it was like rabbit hole after rabbit hole. So there's a bunch of good stuff on there if you're interested.
1: And let's just start with the name Jonestown. And so it typically represents different things throughout its life. But first, the name refers to Jonestown. The project of the People's Temple, which originated in California and moved to Guyana in the late 1970s with a goal to create a self-sustaining communal agricultural paradise. Next, it more commonly refers to Jonestown, the massacre which occurred on November 18, 1978. The incident at Jonestown is reported to have resulted in the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act prior to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, which may we just passed the uh, 20th the
0: anniversary. anniversary of. So May we always remember.
1: Yep. And then before, oh, finally, Jonestown has also been used to describe any new religious movement, which may or may not have been, may have not been, have Can we break this later? We can try. Okay, so we are in one of those moments where we're podcast noobs. Let me start that over again because I lost it halfway through. Finally, Jonestown has also been used to describe any new religious movement which may or may not have the potential for violence. Think of it referencing something like Waco and the Branch Davidians as a Jonestown. And before hitting up your punch bowl, Dictionary.com defines a cult as... A system of religious veneration and devotion toward a particular object or figure. A relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. A misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing.
0: I think you deserve a drink after all that. I think I need one. Oh, yeah. All right, so going deeper into what a cult is and, and going further down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, um, here are some psychological and sociological aspects to consider. Um, cult expert Yanya Lalich, who is a professor um, of sociology at Carolina, oh, excuse me, California State University at Chico, notes that most cults tend to have the following common characteristics. The first is a belief system that appears to have the answer to all of life's questions and offers a special solution only to be gained by following the leader's rules. It requires a high level of commitment from, at the very least, some of its members, something like an inner circle. The cults also have a charismatic leader, an absolute authoritarian leader that becomes the object of worship. A transcendent belief system is the third characteristic, and that's something wholly independent of the material universe beyond physical laws. And finally, systems of control and systems of influence. She actually had them listed as separate um, characteristics. I just kind of combined them under one because they do play off of one another. So the group has an indoctrination process in which people are isolated, broken down, changed, and reset as determined by the leader. This can include harsh punishment, sexual abuse, dietary restriction, and sleep deprivation. And the indoctrination process is successful to the extent that a fear is instilled in its members such that they are terrified to leave. Now, Dr. Lalich um, is an amazing resource regarding cults. And she actually um, had 10 plus years of her involvement in a Marxist-Leninist cult she heads up the Center for Research on Influence and Control. I've seen her on multiple documentaries, and she's been mentioned in quite a few of the podcasts that I enjoy. I actually just got um, one of her books delivered. Andy came in with the book tucked under his arm, and I didn't even say hello. I was just like, is that my book? I have to have it. But I'm going to be reading soon Bounded Choice, um, which is uh, True Believers and Charismatic Cult. So I look forward to reading that.
1: And that's actually one of the more interesting points that I found about her was that she was not only... Um, Interested in cults, but she was a prior member, which means that she knows the inner workings and you know she knows how she fell into the rabbit hole and got stuck.
0: And she does. And she's actually worked with a lot of folks on kind of, I guess, uh, I'll make up a new word, decultification, like helping people who are coming out of cults and the transition and and transformation kind of going back to regular life after that. So let's just look at one facet of that system of control that we were talking about, um, mind control, also known as brainwashing. Brainwashing involves isolation, engulfment, and fear. And I'm actually presently referring to some work by Margaret Singer um, in her book, Cults in Our Midst, and she has worked very closely with Dr. Lalich over the years. And she notes that control is achieved via control of the environment, which includes isolation of members being limited only to the news presented by the leader and the leader's most trusted circle. It also um, is achieved via a system of rewards and punishments. So there's promotions within the cult and public humiliation and shaming of those who fail to comply with or question the rules of the group. Creating a sense of powerless fear and dependency. Basically painting a picture of the world outside of the cult as so dangerous and unwelcoming that members are fearful, too fearful to leave. Again, keeping members dependent on the leader and the leader's circle for all of the information they receive, whether it's true, false, complete bullshit, whatever. And then finally, reforming the followers' behavior and attitudes within a closed system of logic. So allowing no real input of or criticism by cult members. So these characteristics and concepts are actually going to become a part of our framework for examining each cult that we present over this series of podcasts. Just kind of wanted to lay it out, get those basics out there. And going back to Lalish's first characteristics of a cult, the charismatic leader, let's look at the man of the development of the People's Temple and eventually the Jonestown Paradise and its rise and fall.
1: That man is Jim Jones. Who was this guy other than just being a charismatic founder and leader of the People's Temple? Was he a prophet, a healer? a pathological manipulator, a sex god. He didn't look it. But James Warren Jones, aka Jim Jones, was born in Lynn, Indiana on May 13th, 1931. He was the son of James Thurman Jones, aka Big Jim, who was a disabled World War I vet, and Lynetta Jones, nee, Lynetta Jones, nee Lynetta Putnam. Nay. Nay. Lynetta Putnam. Let's start that over again and maybe we can edit this one too. Who knows? We'll give it a try. James Warren Jones, aka Jim's Jones. Jim's Jones. Let's do it one more time. Have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> James Warren Jones, aka Jim Jones, was born in Lynn, Indiana on May 13th, 1931. He was the son of James Thurman Jones, aka Big Jim, a disabled World War I vet, and Lynetta Jones, née Lynetta Putnam. As his mother worked a variety of jobs due to her husband's disability, Jim was mostly left to his own devices. It is reported that his father had little interest in him. He may have been abusive. His introduction to religion may have been the result of a neighbor who would bring James to their church often. He was so inspired that that his own personal religious exploration began at the ripe old age of 10 years old. This included visiting small churches in his hometown, attending faith healings in in church revival tents, and even got chummy with a Pentecostal minister for a spell. With his religious zeal and keen observation, he began to preach to other children in the community. He was a strong student and a gifted public speaker, not like me, but socially he tended to be a loner within his cohort. Not only were his strong religious convictions and interests off-putting to those of his age group, but he had no interest in typical teenage activities like sports and deemed other activities like dancing and drinking to be sinful, like some modern movies.
0: Now I got to cut loose. Cut loose. Exactly. Sorry. Got that dance in my head right now. (laughs) Kevin Bacon is everywhere, everybody. I like bacon. I do too. And Kevin Bacon. All right, so here we have a boy. He was essentially shunned by his father, had presumably minimal nurturance from her mother because she was the loan provider. He did find comfort in religion, but otherwise he was socially isolated. So on top of that, we have his keenly inquisitive um, nature and his strength as a public speaker. Jim's connection to an understanding of the isolation felt by disenfranchised minority groups, such as people of color, and those who supported the civil rights movement are evident in the following quote from Jim. Feeling as an outcast, I'd early developed a sensitivity for the problems of blacks. As a child, I was undoubtedly one of the poor in the community, never accepted, born as it were, on the wrong side of the tracks. Well, eventually Jim's parents split up with his mother making the move to Richmond, Indiana, and Jim began working as an orderly at a hospital where he eventually met Marceline Baldwin, an older nursing student. In 1948, Jim graduated from high school and soon after began matriculating at Indiana University. At the end of his first semester, he married Marceline. the date was june 12 1949 and the two adopted several children of various ethnic backgrounds over the course of many years and jim would actually refer to his family as his rainbow family it's noted that jim and marceline actually were the first white couple to adopt a black child in indiana in 1961 and marceline was with jim until the very end
1: jim attended both indiana and butler universities prior to his graduation from butler and the inception of his own church Jim became enamored with the concept of communism. He expressed his frustration regarding the treatment and harassment of communists communists received during the second Red Scare in the U.S. He did note regarding his connection to communist ideology in a quote, I decided, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. So I consciously made the decision to look into that prospect. Upon graduating, Jim entered the ministry in 1952. He served as a student minister at Somerset Methodist Church and was welcomed welcomed despite his pastor's knowledge of Jim's communist leanings. However, Jim divorced himself from the church when he became aware that black families were turned away from participation in worship. He formed the Wings of Deliverance Pentecostal Church in 1955 in Indianapolis, which which eventually became the People's Temple.
0: As a charismatic churchgoer and eventual leader, Jim claimed he possessed psychic powers, including that of foretelling the future and the power of healing the sick. As he had previously observed faith healing services, he noted that such healings could attract people and generate income, which he used to accomplish his social goals. Jones and the inner circle members of the temple knowingly faked healings because they found that the healings increased people's faith and generated financial resources that they could use to help the poor and finance the church. These healings involved the use of chicken livers and other animal tissue, which Jones and Confederate temple members claimed were cancerous tissues, which had been removed from the bodies of people who had been healed. I read in an article, um, which we'll discuss a little bit later, that Jones actually had people assigned to, quote unquote, guard the cancers. Essentially, they were guarding bits of gizzards wrapped in paper towels that were concealed in the bag. And these were people that he permitted to carry firearms in order to properly guard the bag. I'm just saying. So it was pretty... Pretty important part of the way that he developed his congregation and their beliefs and
1: uh, and yep. faith. Another another oddball thing that I noticed as I was going through this, and it's not really oddball, but it's it's I guess it can go one of either way. The fact that he was concerned with the social, I guess, impact of the African American plight, um, yeah. considering that he came from a uh, somewhat racist upbringing. And typically, poor, racist individuals tend to either go one of two ways. And, you know, his was to go the opposite of his family. But more often than not, I believe they stick along the same lines as the ideology that they're brought up with, regardless of how they were brought up. Um, It just gets instilled into them and and moved along. So I think it's interesting that that he did have that that compassion for the Mm African-American blight Um, and and. You know, Jen you and I had talked earlier, and you said some of it was due to his complexion.
0: Mm-hmm. he he always as that that quote that I read before, he always felt very kind of outcast on the fringe, and he he didn't fit, I guess the mold of his peer set in his um in, in his community growing up. And so I think what he he did was he, he kind of he would delve down into just within to be able to use that difference and kind of reframe it and rework it in a way. To make it something a little bit more positive
1: yep yep so moving back into the uh, discussion so jim was recognized for his work with the homeless serving as the director of indiana's human rights commission in the early 1960s in february 1960 the temple opened a soup kitchen for the poor and expanded their social services to include rent assistance job placement services housing for the elderly free canned goods, clothing, and coal for winter heating. He even opened a center to assist people struggling with addiction. The temple's public profile was further elevated when Jones appointed to the Indiana Human Rights Commission. He engaged in public attempts to integrate businesses and was the subject of much local media coverage. The People's Temple relocated to Northern California in 1965 as Jones became fearful of nuclear war. First settling in in Ukiah, Touted in a newspaper as one of the top nine places to hide in the event of a nuclear attack. I think that's pretty fitting because I've never heard of Ukiah outside of this. That's
0: pretty damn safe.
1: Yep. And then to San Francisco in 1971, probably not on that top nine list.
0: Mm -mm, I wouldn't think so. All right. So once the church moved to San Fran, Jim adopted the name The Prophet. And at this point, Jim had been preaching at numerous churches to drum up support and enrollment in his flock. His ability to promote socialist, Marxist, communist ideals was possible being present in a very electric, kind of socially radical and very charged socially aware environment at this time. His political and social activism enabled him to build rapport and gain the trust of individuals as he developed a place where they could feel comfortable and that they belonged. Deborah Layton, who was actually the financial secretary um, to the People's Temple and a survivor, um, recalls that every single person felt they had a purpose there and they were exceptionally special, and that's how he brought so many young college kids in so many older Black women in, so many from diverse backgrounds who realized that there was something bigger than themselves that they needed to be involved in, and that Jones offered that. He was seen as a source of sensitivity and understanding that made those around him believe he was truly ready to help them and offer them support. And they were well taken care of. They were able to finally feel after suffering pain and hardships that they were accepted for who they were and were free of judgment, and it felt an emptiness within. Jim gained a great deal of momentum with his work focused on human rights and his group was largely recruited from his social justice and human rights activism. The desire for the new members to make the world a better place became quite easy to exploit. His faith healings only further sealed the deal. Jim had considerable clout within the political community and he was able to command hundreds of followers to attend rallies, walk precincts and bring out the vote on a moment's notice when needed by politicians. He held an audience with the mayor, the governor who at the time was Ronald Reagan and as well with Rosalind Carter, the irony here is that Jim's, Jim was held in such high regard by the current government when what he preached was how the government was failing society as a whole. And, and basically, um, his disapprovement of the, the democratic and capitalist ways that um, are part and parcel to, well, pretty much our government all along. He held control and he demanded control of others in curious ways. Congregation members were um, asked to sign over their homes and their power of attorney to Jim, which they did signed blank pieces of paper, Um, parents signed false confessions of sexual abuse and illicit behavior against their children, so he had some great blackmail material. He turned spouses and family members against one another. He saw himself and referred to himself as their father, their mother, their sister, their savior, and with this, mind control tactics were alive and well, such as the the sleep deprivation that occurred as people were forced unknowingly to work tirelessly to push Jim's agenda. Many men and women were divorced and asked to remarry. Family units were destroyed. Sex was discussed from the pulpit. Sexually, he would do what he had to do for the cause, for socialism. And even if he didn't like it, wink, wink, because there are numerous resources out there discussing Jones's sexual beliefs and his big oops of soliciting an off-duty police officer for sex in a public bathroom. And um, his uh, use of reaction formations, a psych term. Um, to cope with his own sexual preferences and um, how that resulted in a lot of back and forth beliefs within his teachings becoming only more skewed as he picked up drugs and uh, his drug use increased
1: and this is one of the parts that as i was learning about this that becomes a little bit i guess more difficult for me to follow along with and i guess that that comes from well my question is this as these things started happening I, from reading, it seems like it happened not as gradually as it a, could have happened in other circumstances. So I do tend to wonder, how is it that the inner circle stayed as cohesive as they were and stayed behind them? I think there's a couple facets to that. I think to me, the most obvious facet is when you have a group of people who have basically become more or less a family at this point because they've been, you know, it's the disaffected, those that have been shunned from from regular society Whose own
0: families were probably pretty yep. full of dysfunction. Yep.
1: And and not only that, now they've had to distance themselves. And Jen and I talked about this a little bit before. But I, I, I guess looking at it from my lens, which is not the same, I come from, well, not a perfect family. We definitely have our issues. But the reality is, is that it's a good family. We all support each other. We all care. But how you could come from or how you could get to this point where you can see these things going so wrong with the person leading the family and you still stay there. Uh, You know, I guess it's similar to an abusive father model in a family. And, you know, you just hope things will get better, I guess. But it's just odd to me that more bells and whistles didn't go off, that the inner circle didn't crumble while this was going on. And maybe it was slower than it appears to be in the the readings. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess that's one of my biggest questions is how did it stay cohesive during this period? because this is when it started to go a little sideways.
0: And like Andy was talking about, he and I've had a lot of discussions about this. And I think, you know, in my opinion, um, I think you had a lot of folks who were pushed to give up and sacrifice so much to be a part of this temple, which on the surface had seemingly good intentions. Um, And yes, folks did come from disaffected, potentially broken backgrounds, not all, but a, a decent portion of them. And um, let's face it, you give up as much as you know your your um, your power of attorney, your financial power of attorney, your you know homes, your your savings. You're kind of screwed. Yep. I mean, yep. you're you're kind of screwed. And so you know, a, a lot of us, in an effort to feel our you know make ourselves feel better, you know, we just we we hope and we wish it's gonna get better. It's gonna get better. It's gonna yep. get better. And you know, there may not have been you know people may not have seen bells and whistles. They might not have seen it the the same way. Yeah. Um, and this is purely outside looking in. But there there, there were those
1: yeah. that, uh,
0: that defected.
1: Yeah. And the last thing I will say is that I, I kind of, in my own mind, break it down to two camps. You have the camp that, you know, things are a little sideways, but it's going to get better. And then you have the other camp that was saying, I want to get the hell out of here, but he's got blackmail and he's taken all of my possessions. So I have nowhere to go. And even if I did go, I'd still be ruined.
0: Where the hell
1: would so, I So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm now stuck. And I think that's really, there's probably more than just two camps. There's probably all the shades in between. But the reality is, is in my simplistic mind, that's how I break it down, is into those two camps.
0: You're not simple.
1: Oh, I'm pretty simple.
0: Okay. So, <laughs> that's for another podcast altogether. One day I speak pretty. You dude. Today you speaking pretty. All right. So, uh, there were those that heeded the red flags. They did. They defected from the people's temple. These men and women, they went to the news. They informed the media that the man who was almost a poster child for civil rights and human rights, um, who preached equality, right? He had gotten through all these groups and um, you know the disaffected black youth, the elderly um, black folks that um, he had working tirelessly for him. Well, guess what? He had an entirely white inner circle and uh, he was exposed to the congregation and people began to leave the church in increasing numbers. And the outside world began gaining considerably more information about the People's Temple, um, what had been a closed, seemingly protected community. So now information's out there. And guess what? Pretty damn paranoid Jim Jones. I mean, skyrocketing paranoia with deep fears of being monitored by government agencies, among many, many other fears. 1973 rolls around and Jim tests his congregation's dedication by asking them if this movement is worth dying for. As he explained it in this quote, planning your death for the victory of the people, for socialism, for communism, for black liberation, for oppressed liberation. And he shocks the congregation with this question, yet he keeps bringing it up. Is this movement worth dying for?